it increasingly became evident to some of the researchers that this cover-up had gone much deeper and was much more profound than they had ever thought back in the days of the 50s and 60s. Ladies and gentlemen, we know of America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? Uh, this is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. I am so sorry for the delay in getting this episode out to you folks. Just been a crazy two weeks here at BOA HQ. I'm not going to offer you a bunch of promises saying we're going to get things back on track and get back to a weekly schedule. I'm just going to do my best to make that happen. And hopefully, by the time you're done listening to this amazing conversation we've got for you here this week on BOA Audio, you will say, hey man, don't even worry about it because that interview was totally worth the wait. And now let's get down to business on this week's edition of the program. It is definitely one of the most highly anticipated interviews we've had on the show in quite some time. Our guest is superstar ufologist Richard Dolan. He's been on the program numerous times, of course, for the annual baseball special, but it has been four years since we had him on the program for an in-depth discussion on the world of UFOs and ufology. So the time has come really to sit down and talk to Rich Dolan about his latest book. came out last summer, UFOs and the National Security State, Volume 2, an in-depth examination of the history of UFO events and UFO studies from 1973 to 1991. It is a mind-blowing book, my friends. I give it the highest recommendation I possibly can. As noted, this is Rich's first full-length BOA Audio interview since way back in 2006 on BOA Audio Season 1. Let me give you a little preview of just the sheer array of angles we're going to be covering here in this conversation. We'll delve into the evolution of UFO studies from 1973 to 1991, how ufology emerged from its nadir of the early 1970s and sort of went through a renaissance as the late 70s began to take hold. We'll talk about how crash retrieval and abduction research proved to be a revolution for the field. We'll hear about the APRO versus NICAP versus MUFON feud that was an undercurrent to this era of UFO studies. We'll hear about Richard's research into how plausible the government-made UFO concept holds up when looking at the known research of the time frame. We'll discuss his concept of a breakaway civilization formed by those in the know about UFOs, the controversial Bill Cooper and Richard's decision to include his contributions to ufology in the book, the perceived taint of the Doty era of UFO studies and UFO material from that time frame, the mind-blowing testimony of the all-too-unknown Dr. Eric Walker, and a whole bunch of other stuff including the aviary, Colonel John Alexander's UFO working group, 
the death of nationalism and the rise of globalism and privatization and the practical challenges of UFO disclosure. That's really just scratching the surface of this conversation, my friends. It is jam-packed and truly provides a feast of information and insight for any serious student of the UFO phenomenon. I can't wait for people to hear it, so let's get to the bio and then let's get cooking. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Richard Dolan, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Richard M. Dolan was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1962. He holds an M.A. in History from the University of Rochester and a B.A. in History from Alfred University. He earned a Certificate in Political Theory from Oxford University and was a Rhodes Scholar finalist. Prior to his interest in anomalous phenomena, Dolan studied U.S. Cold War strategy, Soviet history, and international diplomacy. In the year 2000, he published UFOs in the National Security State, an Unclassified History, 1941-1973. to this 500-page history provides clear detail on the major UFO cases of the early Cold War era, the attitudes and policies toward UFOs by the military and intelligence communities, and the fascinating development of the citizen movements to end UFO secrecy. In 2009, Richard completed Volume 2 of his historical study, subtitled The Cover-Up Exposed, 1973-1991 and is now at work on the final volume of the trilogy. He has also published articles and spoken at conferences around the world. Among his main themes are the destruction of our political liberties as a result of the UFO cover-up. He's also speculated on the possible nature of the non-humans themselves and what their presence here means for our civilization. This has led him to take a fresh approach to the topic of exopolitics and to develop unique insights into the practical challenges and opportunities for a true disclosure of the UFO phenomenon. His website is www.keyholepublishing.com All one word, pretty simple, keyholepublishing.com Head on over there if you want to pick up UFOs and the National Security State Volume 2 as well as get some information on Richard's next book and read a wealth of really great papers from Richard and check out a whole bunch of other stuff from him there at the website, www.keyholepublishing.com. Check it out. And now, without any further ado, you've waited long enough, my friends. Let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on April 26, 2010. Richard Dolan, talking about UFOs and the National Security State, Volume 2, on BOA Audio, Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, we are coming at you with just an Awesome interview, a huge interview that I've been looking forward to for so long, and over the course of this weekend, I've been getting more and more amped up for it. I won't even get into sort of the mystery of it. Our guest is Richard Dolan. He's the author of UFOs in the National Security State, obviously Volume 1, and then the big one that came out uh, this past summer, Volume 2, that so many people have been waiting for, and so many people have been emailing me over the years saying, when are you going to get Rich Dolan back on to not talk about baseball? And obviously I've been really looking forward to bringing him back on, but I want to make it special when he comes on the program. And as the new book came out this past summer, I sat down and read it, uh, sort of as I was telling him before we set up the interview, hunted and packed because it really is an amazing reference book, and then sat down this weekend and just poured through it and loved it. And I, I mean, I can't put this thing over enough. It is just unbelievable. Uh, I really enjoyed it so much. As a student of UFO history, this is a must read. Really captures so much history of the UFO field that is always in danger of going missing. 
he's managed to wrangle so much of it, and for people like me who've only been in it for a few years, just elucidate the whole history of this phenomenon and the people who've been looking into it. So, Richard Dolan, welcome back to BOA Audio. I'm looking forward to a real classic here. Tim, thank you so much for having me on. I love doing your show. You know, like as I said, I, I can put over the book huge. It's it's amazing. covers 1973 to 1991, and the subtitle is The Cover-Up Exposed. It's 583 pages, folks, so, we're, you know, we're not going to be able to get into everything here. You have to go out and, and read it, and don't be afraid to read it because it's so long because once you get to the halfway point, it feels like you're winning this battle, and uh, I, I was holding it in my hands reading it, and I was like, I'm getting closer to finishing this thing. I'm going to finish it. So... <laughs> <laughs> One thing I, I would uh, definitely mention, because it is a, it's a big, fat book. It's uh, 583 of text and then with uh, end notes. Hmm. And, uh, it's, it's well over 600 pages, which can seem daunting. But what I always try to point out is I really designed this book so that it's really about 200 or so short essay-length pieces. Like um, So that, in other words, you, you really could skim the book if you didn't really – if you didn't want to read the entire book from start to finish, you could pick it up and read three to four pages on a particular topic that was of interest to you. Uh, and I designed it so that it would be something that you could either read from start to finish or that you could just dip into as you wanted to. Yeah, it's very readable. And, and I had to sort of go back in my memory as to when I read your first book, but it seems like you could put them right next to each other and there would be no difference. Do you know what I mean? It's like they're very structured very well as a yeah. continuous unit, which I like a lot. Well, I really tried explicitly to, to uh, make this a true follow-on to the first volume. So, yeah. Let me see where to even start. Well, going into the book, uh, what I've been thinking all along, that, you know, the early 70s kind of, in my mind, sees – is sort of like the death of this classic ufology where it was like the debate was a lot simpler back then. Yeah. And then you get to the early 70s. And I feel like the field as a whole sort of went off the rails with the Condon Report and Blue Book, James McDonald dying, and, and sort of like all these problems with NICAP. And exactly. I never really felt like it kind of recovered, and I'm going into the book wondering, is this going to change my mind? Am I going to have a whole different take on this? But in a way, it sort of reinforced that because coming out of the book, I felt like, you know, 73 to 91, all of a sudden, ufology just got smashed into a million pieces. It did. It did. Um, it, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, when I look back over the history of ufology, it's, in a sense, a history of our consciousness and how we are trying to understand this great mystery. And in fact, when I look at this book, I see really three major themes that have gone into it, and ufology is one of those three themes. The other, the other two being the encounters themselves, sort of like a history of what I consider to be an important, important encounters, and then the second, uh, the last of the themes rather would be the like the political aspect, the politics of the UFO cover-up. And so I really tried to weave those three together the best I could. Regarding the ufology part of it, which in a lot of ways to me was just sometimes the most fascinating uh, part of the book, was UFO research in the 50s and 60s. I think when when we look back on it, was a very conservative affair indeed, and. I'm not even blaming the researchers of that era, but it just I think it takes time for the the true strangeness of this phenomenon to sink in. I think it takes generations. And so what happened in the um the 50s and 60s was that the UFO emphasis w was basically political in so far as researchers were looking at it. There was groups like NICAP led by Donald Kehoe which wanted to end UFO secrecy. 
there was the group APRO, led by Coral and James Lorenzen. They were not political. It's true. But there was this big political emphasis coming from NICAP. And when the Condon Committee in 1969 essentially slapped the whole UFO topic down, there was almost nowhere for researchers to go. And, and what ended up happening is that ufology sort of became recreated, mm. at least with this attempt at explicitly scientific approach to the problem. So we get the development of what became called scientific ufology. And I would say that during the 70s and well into the 80s, that was the dominant uh, theme of UFO research was this attempt to be scientific. The problem, of course, is that to do science right, you need money. And that's the one thing that UFO groups have never had access to, is <laughs> yeah. a special amount of money. But the idea, I think, was, was laudable in the sense of, like in the case of MUFON, uh, they went over and over again to revise their investigator's handbook and to try to s standardize how you would look into UFO cases. And you know, a lot of the leading uh, thinkers in ufology, Richard Hall, for example, who promoted, you know, scientific way of looking at this. The, the drawback, of course, to scientific ufology, UFO research of the 70s, I think, as a result, was a very conservative, uh, a very conservative ideology, and it. And in fact, they almost explicitly tried to reject political overtones until the late 70s when the Freedom of Information Act sort of thrust itself upon them and they started realizing, oh yeah, there is a cover-up. <laughs> when all of these documents started coming out that, uh, that proved a cover-up. But I guess, I guess the big thing that I take away from UFO research of the 70s and 80s is just how it was so dynamic. It it reinvented itself many times. There's a lot of arguments. It still goes on today, of course. But in retrospect, what you find with all the debates and the arguments is that it was the sign of a very vibrant, very intellectually vibrant field. That's the way I look at it. There were people who were ahead of the curve, people who were behind the curve, but they were all debating with each other. And and then, of course, it just completely exploded with the development of the Internet. Yeah. Now that I'm hearing you frame it this way, it's almost like you could sort of separate it in a way like where there was this classic conservative ufology then that suffered all these hits uh, in the early 70s. And then there was this like rebirth or renaissance of the field where all these other things got thrown into the mix. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I think that's about right, um, including a lot of ideas that were um, very much beyond the panel in the 60s. Uh, you get Jacques Vallée uh, coming in, the, in the, by the 70s talking about uh, why the extraterrestrial hypothesis just wasn't really all that persuasive. Vallée and John Keel were really some of the leaders in, in promoting ideas of UFOs as interdimensional, um, something even stranger than extraterrestrial. And then, of course, you get the rebirth of the political and the, and the conspiracy cover-up aspects of UFO research by the late 70s. It, it had come back in full force. Um, and in fact, that's, I think, by the uh, the birth of the Internet. I, I look at ufology now as pre- and post-Internet okay. when I really see it in the big picture. Before 1980, let's say 86, 87, I mean, there was no Internet to speak of. And back in those days, as with any of these, uh, not just UFO research, but any field, if you wanted to contribute, if you wanted to have a voice in ufology, your options were somewhat limited. There were a couple of major publications you could try to contribute to. They all were guided by certain editorial policies, and 
more importantly, there were just a certain limited number of pages that they could publish. Um, and that's really what UFO research was for a long time. Now, there were a lot of small publications that had limited circulation. We kind of forget about these. I have a nice collection of them. But basically, you were limited to um, publications that had somewhat limited distribution. With the Internet, really starting in 87 in a big way, all you needed was a PC and a modem that could allow you to publish your thoughts instantly to larger numbers of readers than the MUFON UFO Journal had ever had. And so what really happened is that by 87, the field exploded. So all of these uh, formerly outside-type individuals who had some ideas that were very um, sometimes difficult to prove one way or the other, but they were certainly compelling to a lot of people, people like Bill Cooper and John Lear, I'm thinking of mm -hmm. mostly. Bill English was another one. People don't remember him as much these days. They, they really brought UFO research into a much more uh, cover-up-oriented, conspiratorial kind of mode than it had ever been before. And I think that's almost solely due to the Internet. Well, now that you're bringing those guys up, I kind of – the thing that really struck me too from reading the book and, and all the stuff I heard over the years and everything, and, and I know people are going to roll, <laughs> roll their eyes when I make this analogy, but like I feel like Rick Doty – is kind of like the steroids of ufology, where anyone who even sort of uh, was in that loose circle or talked to him or knew of him, all of their stuff is tainted. And then, you know, you the various excuses for people who were like, you know, I only kind of knew him, or, you know, this part might be true, or this part might not be. And it's like a whole portion of, of research is like, has that kind of cloud hanging over it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. I have... Um also problems when I really consider the impact of Richard Doty on, on ufology. And for anyone who's listening to this who doesn't really know who he was, I'll just very briefly. Uh, Richard Doty's still around, of course. He was um, for a long time in Air Force Office of Special Investigation. So he was an intelligence officer with the U.S. Air Force. And it was Richard Doty who in the early 80s through the 80s had been involved in uh, a lot of the key moments in which some of this like the Majestic 12 um, claims had gotten out, and it was often through documents that uh, their authenticity is was not 100% legitimate. So documents that were doctored to one extent or another. The problem with uh, assessing Doty is that, I, I've always felt this, that there are a number of researchers who they'll, they see the name Doty and then they just say, oh, well, dismiss everything that he says. It's all hoax, 100% fabrication. And when I hear these uh, types of assessments, I just think that these are people who – it's like I'm talking to someone who's 10 years old. You know, there's nuance in this world. Yeah. And if you're, if you're putting out disinformation or if you're trying to, let's say, manage a topic in some way, you don't simply make up things out of whole cloth and you just toss it out there like that. There's a lot of truth in there. In the case of uh, one particular document that, that uh, Doty and his people – passed on to the researcher William Moore, the famous Aquarius document. This was back in 1980, in which Moore uh, gave this document after some months' hesitation to Paul Benowitz. Paul Benowitz was uh, a defense scientist, private contractor, who was convinced he was seeing UFOs over Kirtland Air Force Base. I actually argued that I think he was seeing UFOs over Kirtland. But, but Moore, through Doty, gave Benowitz a, a, a tampered document 
and it's known as the Aquarius document. It's in this document that the name MJ-12 is mentioned for the first time in any public document that we know of. Now, how is the document tampered? Well, we, we know it was, it was only tampered in one way that we know for sure, and that was changing the, the uh, acronym NSA, the National Security Agency, to NASA, NASA. In other words, to hide NSA involvement in, in the monitoring of Paul Benowitz. Yeah. In other words, if that's the extent of it, you know that doesn't really um, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't really cause one to toss out everything else that's in the document. Now uh, the question is, is there anything else that's been tampered with? But I haven't I haven't encountered any uh, analysis that that goes beyond that little bit. And so. Yeah, there is disinformation that's out there, and, and Richard Doty was behind it. On the other hand, I, I just think it's it's more complex than that. The way I, I uh, see what happened, um, this will give me a real opportunity to, to give one of the main theses of my book. What, what really happened with ufology in uh, the early 70s, as we both mentioned, it was kind of in the doldrums. By the late 70s, it wasn't in the doldrums at all. It had really gotten its groove on in the sense of having gotten thousands of pages of documents released from the government through the Freedom of Information Act, the FOIA. And, and FOIA was something that was not foreseen to the uh, national security people of the 50s and 60s. They really were not expecting that these documents they were crafting would, would somehow make it out to the public. Yeah. But they did. And so this gave as you can imagine, a great deal of impetus to um, UFO research, and it made a number of people think that with the right document yanked out from the government, we just might be able to prove once and for all, without a shadow of a doubt, that UFOs were extraterrestrial. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of documents. If you look at the cumulative total of, say, the top 100 documents that were released, they are strong, strong arguments. Um, I have an article on my website over at keyholepublishing.com that talks about uh, what I think are, are 12 leading documents that describe government interests in UFOs, and I have an analysis of those documents. Well, really, there are 100 or more that are just outstanding. And so by the late 70s, I think it certainly began to look that this was a real danger to the, to the secret. Yeah. The other prong of attack, as it were, came from the leaks that were coming out that had to do with crashed UFOs, and not just at Roswell. Roswell is the best known of them. And even in the late 70s, early 80s, it was it had the best leads to work off of. But there were a number of other cases that were very, very suggestive that researchers like Leonard Stringfield, first and foremost, were looking into. And so you've got the, the one prong of the documents coming out from the government through freedom of information, and then the other prong of, of the leaks coming from the classified world about crash UFOs and alien bodies and so on. And now my theory, my thesis is this, which is that from the point of view of maintaining secrecy, if we were in the the inside group that had that had the job of keeping the lid on this. Yeah we would have to take some kind of action. And that action would most logically be in the form of some form of disinformation in the field. And what you would do is stir up the pot, confuse researchers with documents that certainly looked authentic, that felt authentic, that had the right look and feel to it, but that were released in such a way as to kind of stall, stall the research field forever. And that is exactly what the MJ-12 documents did, and these were released 
really through the auspices of Richard Doty, I believe. And and those documents also were, had a lot to do with the crash retrieval phenomenon because they, you know, they're they're disputed documents of unknown provenance and. Um, and they talk a lot about crash retrievals of UFOs, and they have, have now forever and ever polluted UFO research. Yeah, that was sort of the point I was trying to right. get across, too, with the steroid analogy. Just sort of – you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but at the same time, you're like – you know, you're not sure which way's up anymore with some of this stuff. Especially well, I think he's the, the baseball analogy stories. one more time. You know, like uh, you look at Barry Bonds, who was a phenomenal ball player without the steroids. And so he didn't need steroids to be a Hall of Famer. Uh, now with steroids, it, he's been forever tainted. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And so I it's like, so. you know, some of these stories or some of these information, it's like, you know, did it need <laughs> – how much is the steroids and how much isn't, you know, that kind of thing. So well, I think I think one of the, the key things about disinformation that I I feel is, is worth remembering is that disinformation isn't – isn't always false. It can actually be true. If if we're trying to protect information and we're afraid that it might leak out to the public, we might just release that information, but in the context of uh, with other things that are, are known to be false so that it's forever tainted. And a great example of how I think this happened was that a lot of, believe it or not, valid UFO cases were released during the 1970s and 80s through the National Enquirer tabloid magazine. Yeah. Now, um, the National Enquirer, of course, was is a cheap little rag that had nothing but gossip in it, and it ha also had a lot of fake UFO stories that were in there too. But during the 70s and 80s, the National Enquirer had the journalist uh, Bob Pratt working there, and Bob Pratt did legitimate work. There were a lot of stories he investigated th through the Enquirer, believe it or not, that were completely legitimate pieces of journalism. The problem is that they were all, well, in the Inquirer, and so no one would ever take it seriously. Now, the Inquirer isn't just some independent tabloid newspaper. The Inquirer was founded by a man named Generoso Pope, Gene Pope, who himself had his origins with CIA. Um, and so, and he was also a guy who had very powerful political friends, including Richard Nixon. Gene Pope wasn't just some guy off on his own doing his own little thing. He had very, very powerful political connections. And so, again, this fits in with, with the theory that putting out a true UFO story through the Inquirer, in a sense, disables it forever and ever. Yeah. Because even though it happened, people would be inclined to say, oh, yeah, but it's in the Inquirer, so you can't take it seriously. That's that's also part of disinformation. And so when I look at the whole Richard Doty connection to the UFO phenomenon – I see him as part of a much larger kind of counterattack by the national security apparatus to disable the UFO topic. The, the other thing I would point out with uh, the, the MJ-12 or the Majestic documents, and this is something that I'll get into in, in the third volume of my study, um, because the MJ-12 documents aren't just the original seven pages of documents that were released in the 1980s. Uh, if you go to the website, say, of, of Ryan and Bob Wood, They've got a, an enormous collection of yeah. disputed documents there. You know, some, a couple of years ago, I just decided I'm going to print every single one of the documents out and bind them together and read them. And when I did that, it was a stack of almost two inches thick of, of pages. It's an enormous amount of stuff on there. And and it was the sheer quantity combined with the um, 
with the quality of these documents that really made me think, wait a minute, this is not, if this is hoaxed, this is not some individual guy working out of his basement to do all of this. This is a, either these are legitimate documents or you have a very sophisticated team of counterintelligence guys doing this. And then that would prompt the question, well, why? Why would you go through that much effort in that level of sophistication? And the only answer I could think of is that, well, that itself would legitimize the UFO phenomenon if you were going to go through that much trouble to, uh, to toss out that much disinformation. Yeah, exactly. It's like you're doing all that work, so you must be covering something up. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's not that these documents have gotten all that much publicity outside of ufology. Anyway, they haven't. Uh, I would say in the general population, no one knows about these at all to this day. But they are they're extremely sophisticated. Um, they certainly, majority of them, look legitimate to me, um, even if I can't prove that they are. What I actually think happened through the 1980s is that uh, there were a lot of totally legitimate leaks that did come out to researchers during that time. There was a certain amount of disinformation that was released also, and that a little bit of disinformation can go a long way toward discrediting all of these leaks, and I think that that is, in fact, what has happened. And I'm going to dive down a whole different rabbit hole here. I uh, hope you don't mm-hmm. mind. Because <laughs> um, cause the book, there's so many different threads in the book uh, that, you know, we could do a whole interview on each different sort of aspect of the stuff that you cover. I, I thought one part that was really interesting to me was that you really tackle the plausibility of the ours or theirs argument behind UFOs and, and just sort of like how many of these UFOs could possibly really be ours and what do we know from that period that kind of stuff yeah I, that was an important part in other words uh, one thing i try to do is every uh, at every five-year interval or so in the book i try to just to stop and get an assessment of what the uh, the cutting edge technologies appeared to be at that time so like in 1975 in the middle of that narrative i kind of stopped and i i tried to do an assessment of what was what appears to be the, the leading edge state of our technology. Where were we with stealth and where were we with uh, quiet helicopters and things like this? Um, the reason I looked into, into quiet helicopters is simply that in 1975, we had a, a wave of, of sightings of UFOs over U.S. military bases and also going into Canada. These were, they're inexplicable to this day, but they were occasionally described as helicopters or possible helicopters although none of these objects were ever positively identified as helicopters. They happened to be silent or nearly totally silent. They had maneuverability that was at times extraordinary. So what I, what I wanted to do is just to get an idea, well, how good was helicopter technology in 1975, at least as far as what we officially know? Things like this I tried to look into. It turns out I got very lucky. I was able to talk with a, a person who's at Lockheed who is an expert in helicopter technology, and this individual gave me a little bit of help and some pointers. The question was, how silent could a helicopter be? And in 1975, the answer was quiet but not silent, to say nothing of being able to handle uh, in bad weather the way that these objects were. And the bottom line is, I don't think that helicopters could account for what was seen over these, uh, these bases in 1975. I looked into stealth. One of the reasons I looked into stealth technology was because of – to ask myself, 
how possible was it uh, for us to have a very unusual type of airframe for our craft, like either disc-shaped or triangular-shaped? Let me put it this way. The re when I started looking into stealth, what I discovered is that one of the key things of stealth is you have to have an aircraft of an unusual shape, that that helps with stealth. Mm -hmm. The problem was that we didn't have the capability before the mid-70s of practically doing that, because if you had an aircraft that was, say, shaped like um, like uh, the stealth fighter, you know, the F-117A, yeah. it, it would not have flown effectively prior to the mid-70s. And the reason it wouldn't have flown effectively is that its shape would have been a little bit too unstable. The only thing that allows it to be stable now is we develop what's known as fly-by-wire technology. And that is, in other words, you have a, a sophisticated computer on board the aircraft that allows you to make many adjustments per second in the, um, in the performance of the aircraft. And from everything that I was able to study prior to the mid-'70s, that type of system just wasn't really ready. So then I asked myself, well, how would it have been possible to have an effective saucer-shaped object or triangular object flying in the air, you know, say prior to 1970? And I just, I don't, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing how it's possible in terms of what we currently know about our technology. I'm not saying I got the, the final answer on this either, but these were some of the types of issues that I was really attempting to tackle in the in the production and the creation of this book. Yeah, and I think uh, to bring it around to almost to the to the end of of where you're at in in this volume, mm -hmm. you sort of make the case that if this sort of stuff does exist uh, that was created by uh, humans and the government or whatever black projects, right? They're they're part of a whole separate thing going on. So yeah. you're not going to see them in Iraq or Afghanistan or used in any... Yes. You know, yeah. they're above the human race at this point. I, I this think that this technology. is maybe the main, the main idea, the main single idea that I've developed in the course of writing this book. I call it a breakaway civilization. Yes. This, I found this to be hugely amazing and, and, and you know, thought-provoking, so go on. Well, well thanks. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea is... I mean, think of it this way. In the course of human history, we've had many, multiple civilizations existing simultaneously. If you go back 500 years, you can look over at Europe, you can look at China, you can look at um, parts of Africa, uh, the Western Hemisphere, the Near East. Each of those regions of the world had separate civilizations. That is, they had um, the people there had separate ideas of how the universe was structured, you know, different ideas about God, different ideas about science and different levels of technology and all of that. So that we call them separate civilizations. And, and in fact, really one of the big stories of the last 500 years of our history is how these separate civilizations increasingly have come into contact with each other and started to merge. We're creating a global society now. But even in our own lifetimes, we have the example of the Cold War, in which Soviet science and, say, Western science were, had very separate infrastructures. They had secrets they didn't share with each other, obviously. And so to some extent, I wouldn't necessarily say these are separate civilizations, but they were very separate in, their, um, in a lot of the things that they did. Well, so with that idea in mind, now let's move into the UFO topic and the black budget world. And let's pretend that we're part of that society, that black budget world, and we've been given this piece of exotic 
alien technology that we're told to study. And on top of that, we're given a nearly infinite amount of money to play with to do that, and total secrecy as well. And let's say we've got a team of genius-level scientists working on it. So after 10 or 15 years, isn't it possible that we might have made some significant breakthroughs in our understanding of that technology? I think the answer is yes. And is it possible that we wouldn't share all of what we know with the rest of the world? Now, I certainly think we might have some spin-off technologies that we might want to make some commercial, you know, some, some money off of through commercial applications, but we may not want to share everything. It could very well be that some of the technologies we develop would be classified so high that their use would only be restricted, would be restricted for the most important applications, that is for dealing with these these extraterrestrials. And after a long enough period of time, you know, as science builds on itself, one breakthrough leads to another breakthrough, which leads to another, and, and so on. Uh, it could very well be that this classified world has made so many breakthroughs in their scientific understanding that it's given them a fundamentally different view of the universe, fundamentally different levels of technology that they're working with, that we might with justice call them a separate civilization, a breakaway civilization, it's broken away from us. You know, there are several examples in our own history in which we've had top-level technology that we did not use uh, because giving it away would have, you know, giving up the secret would have just been too dangerous. The, the first example that comes to mind is the U.S. strike on Libya in 1986. Uh, the United States bombed Libya, basically to, to try to get Muammar Gaddafi, the leader, which failed instantly. They killed, they killed um, members of his family, but they didn't get him. The United States had but did not use the stealth fighter, the F-117A. And instead, they ended up using F-111s for the strike. The point is that why would you not use your best weapon for a military strike? And the reason was that the, the stealth fighter was still classified at the time. And its use, this is a perverse kind of rule of military, but it, it's true nonetheless. If they had used the stealth fighter, then the rest of the world would have known we had the stealth fighter. And the decision was made that its, its existence was too important to jeopardize the secrecy. Yeah. And so it's a, a situation where you don't use your, your best weapon. I believe that the, uh, the exploitation of UFO technology is exactly along the same pattern. And this is why the United States does not use the black triangles or other flying saucers in its wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, as handy as those might be. Rather, I think that those technologies that we have developed covertly, that they must only be used for the most classified missions, and that is dealing with the ET reality. That is why I think they are reserved for that and that alone. Yeah, the whole – the breakaway civilization theory, I guess you could call it, uh, or thesis, yeah. I found that to be actually kind of like the the scariest part of the book in a way. I found really? it a little – I found it troubling, uh, especially when you not just consider the scientific advancements but also just the – I guess you could say consciousness advancements. I mean, these might be people who are in total understanding of what really is going on and to the point where you almost wonder if you were in that position, if it would sort of like elevate you to, you know, a faux godlike status where you have complete contempt for the human race. Because exactly, exactly. Because think about some of the advances that they very well may have achieved, not just in propulsion 
uh, let's let's assume that they developed a kind of working flying saucer or, or flying triangle of some sort using field propulsion. I think they did. But also in the field of, say, artificial intelligence, where it is very possible that they have breakthroughs that are off the charts in our world. Nanotechnology, uh, various degree, um, you know, areas of biotechnology, genetics, all of these areas, I think it's quite possible. If they've had a, a head start by studying ET technology or ET physiology, they could be way, way ahead of the rest of us. Even if it's only 10 years or 15 years ahead, that, that's a huge amount in today's world. So um, they could very well have this idea. What if they've discovered a secret to um, you know, super long life? Yeah, and they they don't want to share it because if you share that secret with six point six billion people, <laughs> you're gonna have a real problem. <laughs> and so they might very well be aware of the fact that well we can't we can't let people know. And so, but those very few who are in with the secret would and could theoretically become godlike, absolutely, uh, if they and they alone monopolize the uh, technologies. Yeah, if that yeah exactly for folks who are sort of like keyed up on on you know classic cases or hugely important cases i'm more of a sociological type guy but uh, obviously i have appreciation for cases there's a just a myriad of cases in this book um it really as we said earlier it's sort of like a reference guide you can kind of go back and know you know what was the big events of 1975 that i should know about and you'll find them in the book so exactly and that was one of the key um motivations for writing this book was simply to provide uh, a stable a uh, lasting guide to to those main events. So if you wanted to find out about the Travis Walton abduction of 1975, uh, my book has about 10 pages on it, of including really the most up-to-date uh, research and conclusions and concisely portrayed so that you would read it and you would really come away knowing everything you needed to know about it and, and have the ability to, to research it further as well. Exactly. So, so just for that alone, folks should pick this book up. Obviously, this is amazing stuff. In the book, just, just to run down some of the key cases, I'm not going to ask you about these, just so folks know they're in there. Batwaters, Iranian UFO case, Gulf Breeze, Travis Walton, Australia's Valentich case, the JAL flight over Alaska, the STS footage that emerged uh, in the early 90s. So, I mean, th that's just – I'm sure I'm leaving a lot of them out. The, the, big ones. the, the major huge. cases, uh, yeah. I certainly try to make sure I got them in. And a lot of minor cases that I think – a lot of us, even experienced researchers, myself included, had kind of forgotten about or hadn't maybe known much about to begin with. And there's, there's a lot of those. Um, you know, I didn't want to make this a book that only had UFO cases. But uh, to me, uh, the, the history of the cases is important, and I really want to make sure I, I hit some of the biggest ones and some of the most interesting ones. Absolutely. Even those that are, are less well-known. And and the one I wanted to, to jump into here with you was the Hudson Valley uh, UFO wave because that sounds yeah. like the way you describe it in the book is so almost like ufology's perfect storm where it was a lot of stuff going on that had never happened before or at least had numerous patterns of of situations that had never really all come together before. Yeah, that's really true, and in fact, it appears almost midway into the book. It's kind of like uh, the, the centerpiece of the book when I really think about it. Now, the Hudson Valley wave of UFOs is um, maybe that gets top rank. Um, you know, when I think of a unit, if, if you consider the whole thing as one unit, even though it took like a number of years, but you got thousands of witnesses uh, in the New York City area that saw what can only be described as something that uh, was like out of a Steven Spielberg movie. Um, they'd be typically driving along uh, the Taconic Parkway in um, 
Hudson Valley of New York State and into Connecticut. And a typical a typical scene would be some motorist seeing this low-flying object stop over the highway. And, and back in those days, that that highway did not have lights. It wasn't much of it wasn't lit. People would typically stop, pull off the road, get out of the car, jaw dropping as <laughs> this intense beam of light would come down, lighting the road like daylight. You know, except that it was supposed to be nighttime. <laughs> Frequently, a lot of people don't realize, but there were many alleged abduction events that were associated with these Hudson Valley sightings. And uh, also, the big thing was that they often reported a completely new shape. That is that of the boomerang or sometimes a triangle. And sometimes it was hard to tell because it was at night and, and you could have a difficult time making out the shape of an object with all those lights. But enough witnesses did see a clear boomerang-shaped object, being able to maneuver, being able to stop, um, stop, move, stop, move, and, and do things that, you know, in ordinary aircraft, we just don't know of aircraft that can do this. It was also important because eventually this started to make the news because enough people were seeing it, and that's when you saw the, uh, the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, get into action and really try to throw cold water over this. And they just lied, you know, over and over again would lie that all people were seeing were pilots flying in close formation using uh, what were called ultralight aircraft or microlight aircraft, um, ignoring all the, the realities of aviation that these pilots would never have been able to do what these witnesses described. Um, you can't stop these aircraft. They don't, they don't hover. Um, if they were ever flying as close together as people said, they they would crash. And plus, these uh, ultralight aircraft are not equipped with heavy-duty spotlights that can uh, light the ground up like daylight. So all of these are just specious explanations. But of course, the, the reason that they were given is simply to avoid public panic. One of the things that, that comes out with the Hudson Valley case is you really sense throughout that the public was just that close to, to losing it, to going over <laughs> the edge. People were were truly concerned, as they should be, of course, uh, because there was no explanation given, given for these. Uh, it certainly seemed like we had air, aircraft or craft that were flying over that just were not supposed to exist. On top of that, we have a couple of um, cases in which the um, – you know, national security really definitely was involved. There was the, the flyover of this enormous object over the Indian Point nuclear facilities, as in Hudson, Hudson Valley, in July of 1984. Um, and we don't have photographs of it, but we've got the testimony of several security guards who on one occasion were allowed to speak to the investigators, um, led by Phil Imbrogno, who was very much involved in this case. And they got drawings, they got explicit statements, the guys were able to talk to the researchers in the presence of their supervisor. And uh, what they ended up saying was that this enormous object flew over the Indian Point nuclear facility over the one solely function, the one functioning reactor at, the, at that time and hovered just a couple of hundred feet above it, causing a major alarm to go off on at the facility. The base commander, in fact, had his guards aim their shotguns at this object, you got to wonder how effective that would have been. <laughs> um, he was apparently 
moments away from contacting the National Guard. He wanted to have a helicopter come over and have it shoot this thing down. And then the object at that moment just left. It just went off away, and they don't know where it went. So th that's part of the Hudson Valley phenomenon. But again and again, what you find is that the uh, the FAA was, uh, you know, just putting out any kind of calming propaganda about it that they could with the NSA behind them all the way. There was a lot of NSA interest in this case, according yeah. to Imbrogno. So it's a, it is a fascinating case, and um, it came close. It, it seemed, at least at the time, that it was close to making a, a national breakthrough, but it really never did. The New York Times covered it on one occasion, and they just dismissed it, essentially made it, made it out to be crazy talk. Well, what else is new from them, I guess? That was the end of it. Well, and the New York Times, um, as many of us have pointed out over and over again, has had long-standing connections to the world of intelligence. Um, they did in the 40s and 50s, and they do now. Yeah. And they've always done the work of uh, the U.S. national security apparatus. And then, and like I said, I'm going to go down another area here, which I found really cool, because uh, I've always been sort of a student of, of ufology history, just the, the especially the groups. I find that to be really interesting. So I guess... I'll ask you to sort of just talk a little bit about sort of how this scene evolved during the period. And I'll hit some points here just uh, so you don't have to <laughs> sure, sure. do them too much. And, and, and to give people an idea of sort of some of the stories and some of the twists and turns that, uh, that are found in the book. Walt Andrus leaves APRO and forms MUFON. See, I didn't know that Walt Andrus had originally been a part of uh, APRO and sort of yeah, yeah. left. And he through. incurred the enmity forever after of Coral Lorenzen, who um, just never forgave him. Uh, Coral Lorenzen, who really was the heart and soul of, of APRO, <clears throat> and um, never had the, the pleasure of meeting her. Um, I would love to have met her, but she was she was gone. She had passed away before I even started researching this. Yeah. But she was one of the original legends of the field, and um, the, the thing about Coral Lorenzen, from everyone I know who's ever known her, is that she didn't she didn't suffer fools gladly, and she also was very uh, territorial. I guess we could say over over her field uh, and over her organization. And there's nothing wrong with that. But she she really always I think looked at Andres as a kind of traitor forever after that, and, and really never forgave him for leaving her group in in founding Mufon. Yeah, see that stuff I find to be just fascinating. Yeah. And then one guy who didn't really. I, I, he didn't I, from the <laughs> trying to couch my words carefully here one guy who didn't kind of come out of the of uh, all of these machinations and, and, and drama of uh, the UFO groups was J. Allen Hynek he seemed to kind of come off as sort of um, a bit of a jerk at times the secret conference is the part I'm thinking of where he tried to he tried to organize a, a secret conference yeah, where yeah, he, yeah. he put out a list of people who he thought were worthy of his secret conference and you know that rubbed obviously a raw <laughs> A lot of people. Well, it did. Uh, the, yeah, Heineck, um, yeah, I have a. I try to think. I like to think that I have a balanced view of Alan Heineck. I certainly um, don't. I mean, I, I was critical of him in my first book too, actually. Um, and there, there are moments in this the second volume where he comes under criticism. But the fact is, <clears throat> um, despite the fact that in his later years Heineck was considered by the mainstream. Uh, they called him at one point the Galileo of ufology. But the fact is that during the 1970s, when he was founding uh, CUFOS, the Center for UFO Studies, uh, there were a lot of 
his colleagues in, in the research field who did not really trust him. Uh, and some really didn't even have a lot of respect for his abilities as an investigator. I mean, the fact is, Hynek did not really do a lot of UFO investigation. And many people just saw him as, as someone who kind of got into the field and, and tried to take over the joint. And they were very not trusting of him. This, the secret conference that you mentioned is something that he tried to organize in, I think it was 1975. I'll have to go back through my own history. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, he didn't call it a secret conference, but that's really what it was. It was a, an invitation-only, you know, grouping of of what he felt were the most important ufologists, the ones who were only who were worth knowing. I think what what put people off about it wasn't the fact that it was it was private, but Hynek's attitude was really it was a very arrogant attitude, and um, he made it very clear that a lot of the people doing UFO research were just hacks and amateurs. And so when he, he left a few of the people off who really did do good work, like John Schusler yeah. um, at, that one, at one point. Uh, and John Schusler is a, was a very, very good ufologist, I think. Of course, in 1975, Schusler wasn't as well known as he would become later. But uh, the fact was that Hynek did annoy a lot of people in ufology, and, um, and that never, never stopped. Um, there were some very sharp remarks made about him by Dwight Connolly, who was a two-time editor of the MUFON Journal, uh, an, an excellent editor of the MUFON Journal, I would add, uh, back in the um, 70s when Dwight was an editor there for the first time. he It looks to me that he quit the MUFON Journal uh, partly over disagreements with MUFON authorities over Hynek. So there was a lot of bad blood between Hynek and um, and Mufon. Yeah, yeah. See, it's very it's very interesting to me. I also and Hynek and Apro as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it looked like uh, when he was creating Kufos that he was trying to steal. At least Coral Lorenzen felt that he was. He seemed like he was trying to steal her membership lists to sort of uh, you know recruit <laughs> recruit from her organization, and there's just no way she was going to let him do that. And, and, well, let me add one more thing about Heineck. The thing that put people off was here was a guy who had spent his whole previous career really being seen as an Air Force lackey. As he was the Air Force consultant to Project Blue Book. Most of that time, Heineck very willingly towed the Air Force line on UFOs. He didn't really question very much. And so it was only in the late 60s when his own reputation was becoming damaged, because he ended up looking very foolish at one point on, on the UFO mystery in 1966, when he talked about swamp gas as an explanation for these sightings in Michigan. Well, that that just made him look really silly. And I think what happened with Hynek in, after 66 was he thought, you know, maybe I hitched my uh, myself to my, my horse to the wrong post. <laughs> and, and so he came out with some pro-UFO statements. But people in the field really Many of them never fully trusted him. He had connections with the world of military and intelligence that everyone knew he still had. And so when he went into the field trying to uh, maybe gather witnesses, uh, gather membership lists and this type of thing, there was there was not a whole lot of trust. Yeah, well, I can definitely – I can see that and I can yeah. see why. But, but, you know, on the other hand, let me, let me say one thing on behalf of Hynek. Um, you know his promotion of what we can call scientific ufology. I, I feel is a very laudable 
goal, and it's a very important one. It, it's not the only direction UFO research should be going, but it's one of the directions. In other words, I, I would say that a political focus is very appropriate, uh, but I think a scientific approach is also very appropriate, and this is the thing that Hynek really pushed. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, with doing it both ways, and I think they're both important. UFOs as a phenomenon is, is much too big to be studied in only one way or only another way. So uh, I think the idea of promoting a scientific approach to ufology is a real genuine contribution that Heineck did make. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you think – I was I was amused uh, when you are talking about the Travis Walton uh, case. It says uh, during the – yet – there was some organization between the different groups, yet during the Walton affair, MUFON, APRO, NICAP, KUFOS, and GSW competed with each other and withheld information far more than they assisted one another. First, I was just amused by how many <laughs> right, five groups, and you look at it today, it's like, I don't know if KUFOS is still around or if it's just in name well, only. They're like kind of in a state of a coma, really. There's just You've got a couple of members of KUFOS. They don't do any investigation at all that I'm aware of, nothing. They got a website that I haven't even I haven't even looked at the Kufos website lately. I'll have to. Uh, they got a no. It was very minimal membership. Yeah, and it's like Mufon's last the last group standing, which is kind of amazing. But I guess when NICAP yeah. was sort of on its deathbed, it sounds like that's when Kufos and Mufon emerged, and there was that's a, right. a vacuum, if you will, uh, right. with yeah. just APRO around. And and based on what I've been learning over the years about Coral Lorenzen, it sounds like, you know, sort of her way or the highway, which would necessitate other groups sort of forming up, I guess. I think that's right. Um, you know, I would love to be a fly on the wall and kind of do a time travel and go back there and see it all happening. But yeah. I think that is what happened, just judging from uh, all the letters and documents that we have. One of the things I did in putting this history together, on the one hand, I went through you know, large number of uh, of released government documents, but to put together the history of ufology, I, yeah. really the main thing I did was I had access to the the whole back issues of uh, the MUFON UFO Journal, the APRO Bulletin, the NICAP Investigator, um, Flying Saucer Review, and a whole bunch of other magazines that have kind of long since been forgotten, and uh, they were invaluable. They were absolutely essential for me to to use to put together the history of of ufology itself. And it's out of those that you really very clearly get this picture of uh, all the rivalries and things that were going on. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of it also sort of just came down in a way along the lines of sort of like what we were saying about scientific ufology. You know, Kufos was sort of the conservative wing of yeah. UFO studies, and I guess you'd then say APRO maybe was a little more – well, they're the ones that did the first uh, – that case with the guy who had sex with the beautiful alien. So, you know, I mean, they were... Yeah, the... Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, God, I, now I'm drawing a blank. 1957 yeah. uh, case where a Brazilian, young Brazilian farmer... Vila Lobos, I think, or something yeah, along right, those lines. Right, yeah, exactly. So it sounds like they were a little more open to exploring the other stuff. Because from what I can remember from the book, too, uh, I believe it was Kufos who was sort of anti-look really uh, getting behind the crash retrieval, which, as you yep. note in the book, was sort of a revolution to yeah, the field absolutely. of ufology in general. Definitely was. Uh, not just crash retrievals, but also abductions. Yeah. Uh, yeah, KUFOS was always, has always been the conservative wing of, of UFO research, and uh, in the 80s, uh, they were really very slow overall to get on board with uh, the whole idea of crash UFOs or abductions. Uh, they didn't completely dismiss abductions uh, even in the early years, but they were very, very cautious about it. 
Um, not even saying that's a bad thing, but it was definitely the case that where they were, I think at certain points, clearly dragging their feet. Um, probably because the case just seems so crazy. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> the idea. Uh, the, the key about crash retrievals, one of the, I think the reason it was so revolutionary is that it, once you acknowledge that there are crash UFOs, it forces you to think of the cover-up in a very different way. I mean, by this I simply mean back in the 60s and in the 70s, um, Hynek, for example, would, would say things like, the Air Force is guilty of foul-up, absolutely, but not cover-up. Yeah, that was the debate, right? Foul-up right. so, cover-up. So they're screwing up. They don't, they don't know their ass from their elbow, this type of thing. But, but they're, not, they're not genuinely trying to, to cover this up. There's no cover-up. Well, you can maybe make that argument if all you're saying is that they're covering up the, the knowledge that there are these um, – there may be these lights in the sky and – they can't figure out what it is. But once something goes down and you recover it, okay, you can't really argue there's a foul up here. Exactly. It really is impossible. Once you start recognizing that these objects have, have, been, have somehow come into our possession, then clearly we're talking about a cover-up. There, there's really no other way to look at it as I see it. You know, someone's got the technology – and they're hiding it from the rest of us. What is that if not a cover-up? And so with the revelations of these alien bodies being stored at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base or crash retrievals at Roswell and elsewhere, it increasingly became evident to some of the researchers that this cover-up had gone much deeper and was much more profound than they had ever thought back in the days of the 50s and 60s. And I think that was what made crash retrievals such a difficult topic. And even to this day, there are UFO researchers, David Jacobs. And I know David, and I, I like David, but I think he's completely misguided on this. And, and to this day, David will argue against crash retrievals of UFOs. And, and even cases like Roswell, he just thinks we're not the crash of a legitimate UFO. At the same time, he also argues that there really isn't a cover-up. It's, it's a foul-up. They're just, they're all screwed up, but they can't um, they can't get it together, but they're not really. There's not like a grand conspiracy. Yeah. And I just I look at that and I, I totally disagree with that that assessment. As much as I respect David, but um, this is what it comes down to. When you start arguing that there are crash UFOs, there's no way to avoid the fact that that means the cover up is is deep and profound. Exactly. Yeah, it changes the whole paradigm of the argument. Right, and that's really what happened in the late 70s, early 80s, that whole transition. That, and then on, at the same time, in the late 70s, early 80s, this is still pre-internet, but it was all starting to happen, was uh, the advent of the abduction phenomenon really going front row center into UFO research. Again, you know, people had known of abductions before 1980, before Bud Hopkins published Missing Time. That was really the, the breakthrough book. Uh, there were some books by Ray Fowler, The Andreasen Affair of 1978. 879. Great book. And there were abduction cases that were studied in the 70s and even in the 60s. But the fact was that until Bud Hopkins really grabbed hold of that field, that abductions were seen as a somewhat peripheral aspect of ufology. That is, if you were unlucky to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, then you might get abducted and watch out. But what Bud Hopkins argued was uh, not really. This seems to be much more widespread. And not only that, 
but it seemed to there seemed to be a logic in that they were interested in our genetics and in certain bloodlines, and so that you'd see abductions go run through families. And this is a, a very new idea, uh, very controversial. But the the problem with Bud Hopkins is that he was such a very good writer and such a very uh, logical investigator. He very quickly won the respect of a lot of the conservative uh, UFO researchers, people like Richard Hall, for example. Huh. You know, immediately recognized that Bud Hopkins was the real, the real deal, an outstanding investigator and very careful investigator, in fact. And so it it made the abduction phenomenon that much more difficult for a lot of people to dig into. It was difficult to dismiss him, but it was also difficult to accept the implications for some people. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, yeah. Like I said, it would change the whole face of of of. Uh you know, the field. It makes the cover-up or a foul-up thing seem quaint almost in retrospect. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're dealing with, uh, this is like 1980, the early 80s. So really in such a brief period of time that I was covering in that book from the early 70s up, maybe like a 10-year period, this is all prior to the advent of the Internet. The field was already going through multiple permutations and new ideas. It, it was an incredibly fertile uh, period of intellectual history. Um, if nothing else, we really would do well to acquaint ourselves with with the intellectual history of this, and it's like a history of our consciousness. You know, how is it that we have confronted this most awesome of mysteries? Uh, that's really the story of ufology, and I really don't believe that it had been covered in a history until I did it in this book. I mean, there's certainly you can look up ufology and other sources, but what I tried to do was to really see it as it as it unfolded as a as a kind of a as its own theme. Yeah, exactly. You really told the story of how this whole thing's been going on all this time of people looking at the phenomenon trying to figure it out and Yeah. I don't care if they repave it ever. They can't have potholes well, in the track. But maybe you can't run not into the way a to go. pothole in the Daytona 500 and, and lose a tire right. and be out of a race. But so maybe it's not repaving. We don't know anything about asphalt. We don't know anything about most okay. things. I know we don't know anything about asphalt. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Many, many years ago, I was doing a story then for the New York Times on Moses Malone. Moses was shifting from the ABA to the NBA. And my first question was an incredibly intricate question. It went on for three to four minutes, with thousands of clauses problem. And I was trying to get him to be incredibly introspective. What did he say? What was his answer? His exact answer to me, which I've remembered for 35 years, was, that's what bees. That's it. I love that answer. That's it. That says it all. Now, I remember hearing before the book came out that there was all this controversy and everything, but after I read the book, I was like, I don't know what the hell people were talking about. Because <laughs> well, even, even, even in some instances, like, yeah. you know, you re report on... Stuff like the John Lear or Bill Cooper, et cetera. Yeah, whatever, a lot of people got mad. Uh, they yeah. were like pissed off because suddenly I wrote about Cooper and Lear, and that must have meant that I went off the deep end somehow. But no, if you read as you have, you, I think you'd find that I, I try to take a very balanced approach to, to all of them. Exactly. You can't – whether it's true or not, you can't not include it because that would be like erasing the history. This is what people were – this is what, what was at the cutting edge or what people were talking about at the time. I, I mean you have to explain that to people. You, you can't – you cannot do a history of ufology without some reference to Bill Cooper and as difficult as he is. And you know, let me just say in, in writing this volume, there, there are so many explosive topics and I, I didn't want the controversy. I dreaded <laughs> writing about some of these things. I dreaded dealing with Cooper. 
I, I truly did. I, as I did with Lear, and as I did with Gulf Breeze, and as I did with uh, Bob Lazar, I, I, every one of those cases and many others, I thought, how am I going to walk through this minefield to satisfy myself? And also, um, not that I was trying to be overly diplomatic, but I was trying to be careful in how I present these various cases. And ultimately, I have to come down on the side of where I think truth is. But with a guy like Cooper, who is um, who basically left a path of destruction behind him, <laughs> is there truth to what Cooper claimed? You know, what Bill Cooper's talking about the human alien deals and. Uh, um, bases off off world. I think he was hinting at, and, uh, and the fact that Kennedy's driver is the guy who shot him, and, and all of these things. All I tried to do is to to do as much research on Cooper as clearly as I could, and and to try to see where the chips fell. My my take on Bill Cooper, by the way, is that uh, I do think he was exposed to classified information while he was in the Navy, and it's known for a fact that he did serve in the military and. Um, he did so uh, with distinction from everything that I've been able to, to learn. Anyway, it doesn't mean that he's accurate with what he, he had to say. What I think happened is that he, he had some serious mental problems. Uh, and as I pointed out in the book, the, the way that Cooper got a lot of his information was in a FedEx, huge FedEx package sent to him by John Lear, uh, which Cooper then sort of took and made his own yeah, and, uh, and twisted in his own his own way. You know, the thing with Cooper, even to this day, is people who are even casually interested in UFOs are often more likely to know about Cooper than they are about, you know, serious researchers. James McDonald or something like that. James McDonald or uh, <laughs> or Hynek or yeah. anyone else. And so it is it's disturbing to me because I think he had a very negative influence. Even so, there are a couple of things about Cooper that have to be said on his behalf. One is that, you know, really ahead of anyone else in the field, he was really talking about control of the topic and of the of the secret by elite international groups. He Cooper's talked about the Bilderberg group, talked about the Council on Foreign Relations. And in my view, uh I think that these groups are important to look at also. I think that um, you know, strictly speaking, they are separate from the UFO phenomenon. But if you're looking at the structure of power and, the, and the, the structure of the secrecy itself, it is unavoidable, in my view. Uh, you have to look at, at these international groups, uh, because I, I believe that that's where the action is. Absolutely, yeah. At this point, for sure. It's, it's totally eclipsed a national issue. Right. So. And that's another of the themes of, of this book, which is, um, I mean, kind of a theme in the background, is the, the slow death of the nation-state. And why is that important? Well, it's important because, again, uh, if we're trying to, to get to the bottom of the UFO secret and, and if we assume that the government in some form or another is involved in this, well, then the question is, well, what is the government? Who's actually in charge? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, is it the president or is it some other guy, some other group? And this is another theme that I try to deal with in the book, again, to the extent possible. It's, it's not yet possible for any of us to get to the full bottom of any of these, but these are the kinds of issues that I try to raise. One of the things that I discuss in the book is the behind-the-scenes control of the presidency by groups such as the Bilderberg Group, people like David Rockefeller. Now, I can't prove 100% that David Rockefeller has all the UFO secrets. However, 
there's a couple of things that we can point out here. A, it's a fact that David Rockefeller was the power behind every one of the presidencies covered in the course of this second volume, at least from Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, uh, George Bush Sr. Rockefeller was absolutely of paramount um, interest in all of those presidencies. And secondly, Rockefeller's, uh, one of his go-to men was Henry Kissinger. Uh, we know for sure that Henry Kissinger is definitely connected to the UFO phenomenon. Um, there's a, a couple of UFO documents that we have that were directed to Kissinger, and I pointed those out. There's some North African UFO sightings um, in 1976 that were brought to Kissinger's direction. It's very clear when you review the history of this man that he knows a lot. He probably knows everything that needs to be known about the UFO phenomenon. And so um, a little bit by inference and, and the, the available evidence that we have and a little bit just by what I think is a logical, logical speculation, I think that you know Cooper's instinct to look to groups like the Bilderbergs was, was actually right on. Uh, getting back to Cooper, I just think that one of his uh, – his problems with that he was pathological and deluded <laughs> by a lot of things, and as I say, left a trail of destruction behind. He was a drinking man too, and and he was apparently a, a scary drinking man. He came to these conferences often armed with a pistol. Oh boy! And uh, yeah, it was a very very physically uh, intimidating sort of guy, and he would he would just drink a lot and get kind of rambunctious. Uh, I, I listened to an interview with Cooper not long before he, he was killed in a gunfight with federal authorities <laughs> in 2001, and uh, I, I have to say he just sounded so nasty, so mean. He was rude to the host, as I recall. I don't have a copy of the interview, but I'm sure it's out there. You know, He just sounded like someone who had a lot of issues. Indeed, for sure, yeah. So these are the people who were populating the UFO community in the 80s and really uh, shook things up. As you say in the one chapter, Ufology Explodes. I found that to be <laughs> yeah, my yeah. favorite title for it. I found it also amusing, too, in the book that, uh, you know, sort of like way back in the beginning of the of the book, I have the, I have them noted here, the page numbers, so I, I find, I'll say it this way because I think it increases the amusing part of it. Yeah. Uh, claims of impending disclosure. This, this meme has been going on forever, and you can find it in the book because in 1974, it was percolating, and that's on page 43. And then in 1991, it's percolating again. That's page 565. So it's like this thing, for all the folks who heard all the claims and hear all the claims nowadays that it's uh, right around the corner, I'm sorry, folks, but this has been going on forever, and Rich documents it pretty well in the book. Yeah, I mean, it, this is an old story. In, in fact, every decade of the modern era of ufology – you find that there's a moment that comes up when it looks like the secret's going to break. Um, it happened in the 40s. It happened in the 50s. It happened in the 60s. And then picking up with Volume 2, it happened a number of times in the 70s. Um, it happened the 19, in the 1980s and in the 90s. Um, and it happens, uh, you know, when I pick up in Volume 3, it, it happened more than once in the 1990s, and it happened more than once in our own uh, 21st century. Uh, these are legitimate. I don't just because they didn't happen doesn't mean that they actually didn't almost happen. Um, I'm of the opinion that some of these were, were fairly close calls. Okay. So it's like it's like in a uh, I liken it to um, like in a sporting event, like in a hockey game. Okay, you're not going to score unless you get a lot of shots on goal. Yeah. 
And so just because you get a lot of shots on goal that are saved by the goalie doesn't mean <laughs> that you're never going to get one through the, into the net. Yeah. So at a certain point, I think what I see is that you, you could look at it two ways. You could say, well, all of these attempts have ended in failure and therefore they all will. Or you can just say, this is a topic that has never died no matter how many times it's been slapped down. It keeps coming up. And so there's a, a resiliency to the idea of um, ending UFO secrecy that to me is just as striking as the fact that it just keeps getting slapped down all the time. Um, it's like the irresistible force versus the immovable object. And uh, the fact is that the UFO reality is the irresistible force. And it keeps coming up against the immovable object of government secrecy. But, you know, like the song says, something's got to give. And at one, the day will come. I, I really firmly believe this when that secret is going to give. Yeah, and I've been sort of toying lately with the idea that how they could actually pull this off. And my thought was that I could totally see them just recreating the Roswell crash in contemporary times and pretending like we're starting from scratch all over again. And then, um, I'm not sure if, if I follow you. What, what do you mean? Exactly? Sort of like all of a sudden, you know, we get breaking news that a UFO crashed in Gaithersburg, oh, okay. Maryland, and it turns out there's three dead aliens and one that's alive. God. You know, holy Moses, the world's changed. And it's right. like, and then, you know, all all these sort of like breakthroughs happen. You know, you can kind of take the story from there in a sense. It's sort of like they're just going to say, let's start, let's start fresh and just sort of pretend, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's... Yeah, that's... they won't be able to do it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that that's the problem. Um, the whole idea of disclosure, we're getting a little bit away from uh, the, the book, but hey, you know, that's, that's fine with me. The whole idea of disclosure is, is something I've been thinking a lot about for the last few years. Yeah. And um, it's like it's like being half pregnant. You you really can't do it. I don't I don't see it as being very easy to half disclose, um, because the fact is that once that reality comes out in some form, it's going to open the door to all of those difficult questions that a lot of us kind of know is going on. Like how how realistic is it going to be for the government to say, oh, we just learned about this, people? <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. It's not. It's I'm trying not to come going up to be very mine. credible. <laughs> it's not going to be very credible. Nor how credible will it finally will it be when they get a deluge of people who are going to go on the record and say, "I've had an alien abduction experience," because suddenly these people are going to be empowered to speak publicly. And I'll tell you right now, it's going to be a very, very powerful moment, and I think very difficult to deny. So um, once that door is open a little bit, it's going to be open wide. And uh, the, the real issue is always going to be to try to control the spin. Almost, I would even say legitimately, I can't believe I'm saying this, but put yourself in the position of, of the president. How difficult this would have to be yeah. to deal with as a public policy issue. This is a nightmare of an issue. The 1991 abortive disclosure, as I called it, Yeah. Uh, this was – this was originally written about by Robert Collins in his book, Exempt from Disclosure. And um, If it were only Collins who wrote about it, I, I might not have included it in my history, but the truth is that I got a, a confirmation of this from a, a second source, um, a source that is very well known to me, who is uh, someone I have a very high regard for and who has a, a very um, – who is very well positioned to know – 
if this is true or not. And, and this particular source did say to me, not that he was personally involved in the disclosure efforts, but he knew all the, a lot of the key players involved at the time, and he knew it was going on at the time. So this is someone who knows a couple of U.S. presidents as well, and who said to me that, yes, in fact, it happened in 91, and in fact, it happens every five years or so, that there is this uh, constant reassessment of the UFO secrecy situation, and that, in fact, there are people on the inside who do believe that the secret should be ended. The problem that they have is, A, you got people on the other side of the fence who don't believe that, and B, even those people who believe in ending secrecy, the fact is that a lot of them don't really know how to do it Yeah. Uh, without causing a, a political upheaval. And so it is a very difficult issue to, to think about because, in fact, let me, let me just say, I'm going to jump the gun here and tell you that uh, I've never made this statement publicly before. I'm, I'm not just writing volume three of my history. I'm, I'm uh, writing a shorter book that uh, will be out um, in the fall. And I'm co-authoring it with a, a gentleman who was the, um, the creator and producer of the TV show uh, from the 1990s called Dark Skies. Okay. If, uh, I'm sure some people listening know that show. Uh, it ran for a season. It was a very good show. It uh, was kind of competing, I guess, with the X-Files. It was a very similar sort of show. Anyway, his name is Bryce Zabel. And uh, we've become very good friends and collaborators, and we're writing a book which we're calling A.D. After Disclosure. Oh, nice. Uh, subtitled Life After Contact. And really what it, it's um, about are our thoughts on the challenges and maybe opportunities of a world in which the ET secret or the UFO secret is out, how that might happen. I mean, in practical terms, what actually will be the upshot of this new reality? It is an, a, a topic I've been grappling with now for a number of years. And one thing I can just say is that it's it's a political nightmare. There's really no motivation that the political leadership has, uh, as I see it, to, to reveal this secret. But I think it's going to come out anyway. And the reason I think it's going to come out is simply that the world is not going to stand still. Uh, we're in such dramatic change as a society, as a civilization. Look, we're even in the last 10 years. Um, you know, we, we have uh, YouTube, which really wasn't out there. And we've got um, camera phones, which are ubiquitous now, and they're getting better and better. And if you go on um, a site like Filer's Files, you know, every month he's got better pictures than he had before. Um, the day is going to come when someone gets lucky enough with their camcorder and uh, something is captured that is undeniable, maybe something that will happen on uh, national television or in a news story that happens by accident. Um, I mean, my view, in my view, that there's enough video out there right now to prove it, but it's all in the manner of presentation. So what I believe is going to happen is that it's, it's only a matter of time before the, the, the perfect storm combination is going to happen where this secret is broken. And then the powers that be are going to have to scramble to try to deal with it. They're going to pull out whatever contingency plan they have and, and try to spin it in as calm a way as possible. But uh, ultimately, this is a, a very, very revolutionary phenomenon, a very revolutionary topic. And I have a hard time seeing that the world will be anything remote like it is now after the secret is out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Change the 
face of humanity, if you will. But uh, um, anyway, this is a book that we're actually we're planning to have out, believe it or not. On, at, <laughs> this is crazy, but we're doing it. The Stroke of Midnight on September 23rd. 2010, and the reason we pick September 23rd is that that's the uh, a that's the date of the Nathan Twining, a very famous memo that General Nathan Twining um, wrote on UFOs back in 1947, and b the September 24th, uh, 1947, is the alleged date uh, of Harry Truman's memo, which established uh, MJ12 as an organization. And we thought uh, that'll work out pretty well with our timing as we see it now, and hopefully we'll have everything done. On schedule. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we'll have you back to talk about the post-disclosure world then, so we don't want to over. You got it. Overshoot <laughs> you on that. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, yeah, yeah. There's more than enough in uh, in this last book that I yeah. wrote, I think, to keep us occupied for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let me ask you. There's a bunch of little sort of little points, uh, sort of little details that I, I kind of wanted to get into. And since we have an extra half hour here uh, than usual, uh, I wanted to get into those. Now, th- talk a little bit about Colonel John Alexander's UFO working group, because I was a little mildly confused, I guess, about that just by how was he even allowed to do that? Was it because like they're hanging out and meeting in, in you know government right. facilities and the Pentagon stuff? So it's not like nobody knew. You know, it's not like the people who know about UFOs didn't know this guy was doing this. So, what, what's that all about? Yeah, that's that's really true. The the um, this UFO working group actually it wasn't called that uh, for real. That was the title yeah. given to it by the journalist Howard Bloom, who uh, wrote a book about 20 years ago, um, where he he got some of the general outlines of this correct, but he got a whole lot wrong. And not even faulting Bloom for that, it's it's hard to come up with a scoop like this. But yeah, the, the fact was that John Alexander, who's uh, obviously still around, he's a very major person in in the field of uh, UFO history. Through his contacts in the Pentagon, was able to create this uh, kind of informal group, which uh, was allowed. They were able to meet in um, in a secure facility at the Pentagon on a handful of occasions. I, I think they met about five, possibly six times in the late 1980s. Um, how he was actually allowed to do it, it, it's not clear to me. I don't think anyone's really gotten the full story of how this group and why it was allowed to function. Yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you my opinion, and I think I wrote this in the book. Okay. This is not how John Alexander will describe it. John Alexander has described this, this group. It's called, by the way, the... Um, trying to remember the uh, advanced they gave it a very innocuous title advanced um, something involving physics advanced physics group um, hell I've got I'm, go, I'm going through my own book here because I'm trying to remember oh, okay. what the heck Do you want me to look it? At, I got it right here so I mean get the, get the book right <laughs> oh, here. advanced theoretical physics group what he has argued and he has said this many many times in public statements is that they put this group together with a lot of leading like Hal Puthoff was involved in it Dr. Bob Wood was a member of it Dr. Ron Blackburn who was uh, in the Air Force was involved and a, a number of other names and I've got them listed here in the book that it was a, a multidisciplinary group that met on a several occasions to sort of get to the bottom of the UFO mystery and to find out as Alexander put it, whether there was a cover-up going on anywhere in the government, um, who had the answers on UFOs, basically. Mm-hmm. And Alexander has said over and over again that they couldn't find any evidence of that, and that therefore he's concluded that there actually isn't 
a cover-up in the government. And he's one of these people who says it's foul-up, not cover-up. Now, I will tell you, I, I interviewed a number of members of this group, and one of them, one of them explicitly said to me that that's a load of bull, that they got direct evidence of, uh, of high-level knowledge of a UFO cover-up. The whole point was that uh, John Alexander wanted to use this group as a kind of wedge to gain his own entry, I think, yeah. into the into the in crowd, as it were. Uh, you know, he put together a really first-rate team of of uh, people, and I think that it, the idea was that if they were able to generate their own data, their get their own forward momentum, as it were, that he would then gain access. Into the, the um, into the the true center of the cover-up, and it does look like he was not allowed in. And so, I, in fact, one one uh, I got to be careful. I put this one one individual did say to me that, well, you know, if you don't have the scientific chops, they don't really care. <laughs> and so, um, the idea being that he just you know wasn't seen as essential to have in the in the inside group. Interesting. Okay. All right, now what about the aviary? And for folks who aren't familiar, the aviary was this group of UFO researchers. Uh, it's very, I think as you said in the book, it's one of the most romanticized uh, parts of UFO history. Yeah, and this is another another uh, area where I, I had some trepidation going in, only because I didn't really know where the truth was. You hear a lot of rumors about the aviary and uh, who is it, you know, who are they, what is it. Uh, well, it, it started out simply, this was a, a, co a name given to some of the, the top insiders by Bill Moore and Jamie Chandray when they would talk to each other on the phone. Uh, they, like a lot of other UFO researchers before and since, were paranoid that their, their phone conversations were being monitored. And so they would uh, devise code words based on birds for the various people that they wanted to talk about. Um, and so a lot of these people uh, like Hal Puthoff, like John Alexander, like uh, Kit Green, uh, were all referred to it as, as birds. They each had their own bird name. The problem is that the aviary has really never existed as an organization. I mean, for example, the president w was a member of the aviary He was because he was given a name by Moore and Chandler. I think the president was Eagle. Uh, okay, so it's But like, that doesn't mean yeah. that the president was involved in any of this stuff. He wasn't. Okay. And so the aviary... I think what happened is that people started to think that this was an actual organization when, in fact, it wasn't. Now, the, the thing about it, though, is that there there were loose kind of alliances and working relationships that a lot of these members had with each other. And the fact is that a lot of the members of, of what we would call the aviary do know a lot about the inside uh, cover-up aspects of the UFO phenomenon. I mean, I personally know a, a number of the members of the so-called aviary, quite a few of them, and there's no question in my mind that a lot of them know much more than they would ever want to tell me. <laughs> um, on the other hand, it's it's also evident to me that a lot of those members of the aviary do not have all the answers. Maybe they're at the point where they're knocking at the inside door, but they're not in, uh, in my view. Some of them may be in, others not. So, um, yeah, I think it was romanticized. Um, and, you know, the fact that a lot of them do have backgrounds in the intelligence community, the fact that they're very closed-mouthed um, doesn't doesn't help. So that makes it seem like it's much more than it is. But my, my view on the aviary is that it isn't really all that it, some people are cracked it up to be. Okay. 
All right, now one person in the book that I found interesting, um, because some of the stuff that he said was pretty revelatory, but I hadn't really heard, I'm sure long-time students of ufology have heard this whole story, but I hadn't heard it, so I wanted you to sort of recount it here. And this was the Dr. Eric Walker. I was hoping you would mention that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Eric Walker should be much better known than he is. <clears throat> he was one of the top defense scientists in the country for many, many years. He uh, was head of, of probably the top defense think tank in the country in, in the 50s, uh, the Institute for Defense Analysis, I think it was called. He was uh, a very major, very close friend of the Eisenhower brothers, Dwight and, and uh, Milton Eisenhower. He knew them both very well. He, was, uh, he succeeded Milton Eisenhower as the president of Penn State University. Eric Walker <clears throat> was an extraordinarily well-placed man, and, and um, he came into the UFO field. He was kind of dragged into it by researchers <laughs> um, who were given his name. It, all, it happened like this. Um, back in uh, the, the late 1970s, a Canadian researcher named Arthur Bray uh, Arthur's still around. I, I know Arthur. He's a great guy. Came across some papers of the deceased Canadian scientist Wilbur Smith. Now, Wilbur Smith was very much involved in UFOs and studying UFOs in the 50s and 60s. And what Bray found in the papers of Smith were some handwritten notes connecting Smith to an sci American scientist in the 1950s called Robert Sarbacher. This is kind of convoluted in a way, but what one thing led to another. So, Sarbacher was contacted. He was still alive. He's an American defense scientist. And Sarbacher confirmed to researchers that, yes, he was involved in the UFO phenomenon and that there were crashed UFOs. Uh, he wrote a very extended letter, two-page, single-space typewritten letter about it. Well, Sarbacher in later interviews connected some researchers to Eric Walker. Okay, this is how the whole thing came about. So now you get some researchers thinking, let's contact Eric Walker. He's still alive. Okay. Well, guess what? Eric Walker talked. Just like Sarbacher talked, Walker started to talk. And the things that he said were absolutely just phenomenal. The main researcher who cracked the Eric Walker uh, code of silence was William Steinman. Just as he had cracked Dr. Robert Sarbacher, Steinman cracked Walker. And he got Eric Walker to talk about MJ-12. Walker said to Steinman, Yes, I've known of MJ-12 for 40 years. There's nothing you can do about it. Why don't you just leave it alone? Why get so excited over it? This is way out of your league, essentially. Yeah. And Steinman had a series of conversations with Walker, both by phone and through letter, as did uh, the Canadian researcher Grant Cameron and uh, his associate here in the States, T. Scott Crane. And they wrote about this in their book, which, by the way, I'm republishing in the near future. Uh, called MJ-12, um, UFOs, MJ-12, and the government. Anyway, the long story short is that these three researchers, Grant Cameron, Scott Crane, and uh, Bill Steinman, the three of them were able to get an enormous amount of information, pride, seemingly reluctantly, but they got it out of Eric Walker. And there was another uh, fellow scientist who was able to establish a brief phone relationship with Walker, and who also got an extended amount of information out of Walker, which he had recorded and put released as a transcript. So the sum total of all of this is that Walker gave an enormous amount of uh, confirmation to 
A, the existence of MJ-12, B, the existence of crash UFOs, C, the existence of aliens that have come to live among us. Walker said this. The fact that a psychic phenomenon was very highly coveted by those people in the MJ-12 group who wanted to study this. High level of mathematical proficiency was absolutely essential. He gave a lot of very specific information yeah. about this. And um, and the, the fact was that we have actually his, his letters, which I'm, I'm going to be republishing in the very near future when I republish Grant's and Scott's book. In other words, we have we have direct testimony from Walker himself that this is so. Yeah. It's so I mean amazing. it's just really a remarkable a remarkable part of our history. I've been talking about Eric Walker in, in public presentations now for several years and uh, I do feel that the treatment I gave him in my book is is probably the most uh comprehensive treatment, concise and to the point treatment you're going to find anywhere at this point. Yeah, that whole that whole thing came out of nowhere, and it was like, wow. Now, how how legitimate do you think what he said is? Like, could this guy have been disinforming everybody too, in the sense that you know, could, uh, in a doty esque way, for lack of a better term, or do you think he was just someone who was, you know, retired and sitting around and was like, hey, all right, whatever. If you want to talk about it, fine. I don't care. My my feeling is that he was not disinforming. When you really get into the the details of how the information came out how Walker described it all. Like, for example, some of the, the biggest details he gave were not given to the, the three researchers I mentioned, but to this this other uh, re- this other gentleman named Henry Azadal, uh, who was not a UFO researcher, not not a um, not really known as a UFO researcher, yeah. but but the, he portrayed himself to Walker as a fellow scientist. He did have a PhD, and. Um, and got into very technical discussions with Walker and somehow seemed to earn his trust. And Walker then talked with him. That's really what it seems like when I review the um, the conversations. Walker with, with Steinman really just, he did, he grudgingly confirmed a lot of this stuff, but also just basically warned Steinman off. Yeah. He refused to answer a lot of questions that Steinman and Grant Cameron and, and Scott Crane had asked. He was, in other words, a very difficult witness. <laughs> yeah. He made them work for every little thing that they got and eventually did stop talking altogether. So really the way that I'm looking at it, he was a man in his retirement. And and the other thing was that he decided to talk because they had mentioned to him that Robert Sarbacher had talked. Okay. And so it, it's one of these things where Walker knew that his respected colleague had said something and it's very possible that he, he's thinking in his mind, well, all right, maybe I'll just say this this little thing because it's already now come out. Yeah. I might as well just yeah. say this other thing. And uh, to me, that's how it looks. I think, um, you know, if you're absolutely convinced to say, well, anything could be disinformation, I suppose. But I think if you look at it with as much rationality and reason as possible, to me, my conclusion is that Walker was a legitimate leak. Yeah, it seemed pretty legitimate to me. Now, when you republish... Some of these letters, are you going to include the coded letter? Because at one point he replied yeah. with a letter that had a code in it. Oh, absolutely. And so far it hasn't been cracked, and I'd like to take a, take a crack at it myself. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. Yeah, um, it's hard to, to describe here in this interview, but what happened was um, Steinman wrote, wrote him a letter and um, with a bunch of names and, 
and a lot of claims and dates and things on there. And what Walker did is <clears throat> because his own background was very much in um, in the field of intelligence and ciphering, code code making, code breaking. He knew all about that. And so, um, it, you know, he he mailed the letter back to Steinman with these various numbers circled over various words, and then a reference to a particular code that he was using. So it's all very kind of cryptic and mysterious, and it only added to the Eric Walker mystique. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that, that letter will be reprinted. What happened is that Grant and, and Scott wrote a book 20 years ago called UFOs, MJ-12, and the Government. And it was published by MUFON, but they only published a thousand copies total and that it never went through any other edition. And it's kind of it's published as an eight by ten book. It's it's not what I would call really professionally done. And so the the two of them approached me a few months ago and asked if I would if I would care to publish republish that book. Uh, they've got an expanded revised version of it that's that we're working on. And I said that I would do it. Um the the truth is I mean I've gotten into publishing it in the last few months since I've republished my, my new book. <clears throat> I also published a book by uh, my friend Dr. Richard Souter, and now I'll be publishing this book by Grant and Scott. And I, uh, I've got some other publishing projects that are down the road. So I'm, I'm going to be doing this one for them. And I think this will be out probably within a few months. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get my hands on that coded letter, see if I can figure it out. You got it. <laughs> you, you will have the opportunity. Nice, um, and and that and, you know, and not just me, but tons of other people. So hopefully, somebody yeah, you know. Absolutely, this is it's a really fine book that they wrote. They did a um, you know, in reviewing it now, even though it's twenty years old, they wrote it sort of at the beginning of the MJ twelve era, you know, of research. But it's in in this book where a lot of the, the Eric Walker mystery comes out, and they do a great job with it. And there's a lot of other. Bits of information here and there that I think I think this could reach elements of the general public if we if we package it and market it the right way and I think that we can absolutely it's yeah a very good yeah. book very good book that they did I'm oh. having a great time with this interview by the way oh it's thanks the time of my life I appreciate it well you know hey I I do my homework and want to make sure we like you said before the interview we may not be able to get to it I think we almost got to all, <laughs> almost everything in here you know so I mean there's Excellent. only a few things that we've left off the table so far. Great. To pull back super far and look at the big picture of it, and, and not to get into the disclosure, because we're going to get into that next season when, sure. when you put out uh, AD. Mm-hmm. I think the big sort of thing that emerged from all this, from my reading of the book, was just that this UFO secrets moved way beyond, as we said earlier, the national level and into not so much a global thing, but even a corporate scene. And it it's definitely seems like the money or the power brokers really are the ones who have the the information. I thought what was interesting in the book too is you cite a source who told you that the the security of the UFO secret accounts for seven to eight times yeah. more money than is actually put into the science of the UFO secret. That's right. That is exactly what I was told. And the person who told me that is a scientist who um, I think is in a very, very good position to, to have made that statement. Um, yeah, one of the this is the other main theme of of this book, which is let's call it the politics or the the politics of the cover up, and I think it's very important, of course, uh, asking ourselves if there's a cover up. I think that there is. So then the question is, how is it managed? Who's running it, and so on. And uh, I can't pretend that any of us has really got the full answer to that. But my um, my judgment, when I'm looking at all of the evidence that I'm getting, tells me that this is becoming 
just as so much of the rest of our world is, uh, in many ways, is becoming privatized. Uh, the, the UFO cover-up, in a sense, is being removed from the public realm and is going private, as it were. This is what I think has happened. Um, so, for example, what do I mean by that? Well, let, let's look at uh, at the primordial black budget types of, of programs, they're known as special access programs, uh, SAPs, sometimes they're called. From everything that we're learning about special access programs, they are dominated not really so much by the military personnel, but by the private contractors, whether it's Lockheed or Raytheon or Boeing or so on. Um, and we, we've we got this through a number of studies that have been done on SAPs, um, which I cited in my book, most notably one by the aviation writer Bill Sweetman, who did a very good study of them about 10 years ago. The, the special access programs are becoming private, dominated by the contractors. The whole military policy, I mean, if you look at the war in Iraq and Afghanistan now, I mean, it's, it's so obvious to me that it's being dominated by private interests, not really so much military concerns. It's the same as happened with the UFO phenomenon in the sense that to keep the UFO secret, look, let's say we get this piece of technology that's come to us. So now, of course, we want to study it. Well, how do we do that? Well, the best way to do that is you've got to, you've got to somehow get it to Lockheed. You've got to somehow get it to Boeing. You've got to get it to General Electric because they've got the people, the scientists, the engineers, who actually have a chance of replicating this stuff. So very early on, the secret's got to go at some point to the corporate contracting realm. And when it does, then the question becomes who owns that technology. They're going to have to actually physically possess it for a while if they're going to be studying it. And so it makes sense in a lot of ways to privatize the secret because you, the general, when you retire, you probably get hired by General Electric as a senior vice president in charge of that program anyway, Yeah, <laughs> uh, making your fortune. And, uh, right. and so you've got every incentive in the world to play ball with the corporations. Also, just looking at the structure of the U.S. government, it's been dominated by those those corporate entities for a long time now anyway. Um, and it also helps with secrecy. Once you privatize the secret, it's not so much classified as it is proprietary. Um, and it becomes much more difficult for the inquiring public to really learn anything about it. And people forget just how stringent the security is of these corporations. I spoke to one a Navy commander not too long ago who said to me, point blank. He said, you know, uh, Boeing's security measures are actually superior to that of the U.S. Navy. I have no reason to doubt what he said to me. So that, in other words, by, by moving the UFO secret to the realm of the contractors, it, it really is, it's a benefit to the secrecy. And then on top of that, when you really look at, uh, you know, who I call the masters of the universe, the people like the David Rockefellers and, and his ilk, they're the people who own these corporations, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, from that point of view, if you're, you know, at your little uh, Bilderberg group meeting and you've got your UFO subgroup there, presumably, uh, you know, you'd probably say, all right, look, what we're going to have to do is move move this technology to to our to this corporation and to that one, so that we can find out what the hell's in there. And I think that's exactly what has happened. In other words, uh, I've had to to really do a a fresh study of the structure of power in this world in order to understand the UFO phenomenon. It's really prompted me into looking at um, 
a world beyond nations because really it seems to me that this secret has gone beyond nations. One of the great stories of the modern era is the death of the nation state and it's something that we kind of easily forget about. But if you look at from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s, you get a 10-year period in which so much happened to, to change the structure of, of the world. I mean, you get the end of the Cold War, the end of the Soviet Union, the birth of the Internet and the web, and you get this globalization that takes place, pushing through of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, changes in GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, the World Trade Organization went through changes, the World Bank, all of these went through major transformations to facilitate the process that we now call globalization. And it was very dramatic, so that the nation state, in a sense, was dealt a mortal blow during the late 80s, early 90s. And if, the, if that is so, I think it's a very reasonable thing to assume that the UFO cover-up also, in a sense, really significantly went global, as it were. Absolutely, yeah. That, so. the, the U.S. military is still key because the U.S. military is, is the most important tool used by these elites to maintain that secret. The U.S. military is – I mean, who wouldn't want to have control, right, over the U.S. military? That's some powerful force. And so the U.S. military is used as the kind of um, – the guys who, who get the crash ret retrievals. And yeah, the like the research and development arm of this whole right. thing. Exactly. Yeah. So the U.S. military is like – they're the security force of the UFO secret, at least not the whole U.S. military, but I think what we could say elements of it absolutely is a very big part of it. I also believe – I didn't make this uh, statement explicit in my book, but I'm sure that I will soon in some form, which is that the organization – let's call the Majestic or MJ-12 – uh, it's my firm belief at this point that this is a not just a small group of 12 guys. <laughs> uh, we're talking about a very large organization with, a, I think, a very large infrastructure, much like the NSA, much like uh, the National Reconnaissance Office, which also, both of those groups, existed totally secret for a long time before we learned about them. In other words, the United States has a, has a long history of having major agencies exist in secret. I think Majestic is such an organization, and I think they outdo all the others in terms of their the money and the secrecy that they have. And Majestic's job, if they're called Majestic, and I think they may be, uh, their job is to manage the whole UFO slash ET or alien issue, and that's what they do. Um, they get their money through a variety of means, not all of which I'm sure are legal, but for an organization like that, I'm sure that their attitude is, well, we can't really afford to deal with the legal niceties. You know, we've got a world to run. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Way. They're sitting on, like, the biggest secret, you know, in human history. That's that's the point that really kind of got driven home to me, too, especially in the book, because, you know, I've been researching this and been in the field here now for, like, six or seven years, and sometimes you kind of wonder, you know, what the hell am I doing <laughs> with right. these UFOs? Right. But then, you know, after reading the book, it sort of drives the point home, wait a minute now, you know, this thing is the biggest story and, and sea change in human history, probably almost certainly. Yeah, um, I think so. And 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 having you know reading the book, it drives the point home because you can see how it's weaved so far into history that I know of. You know what I mean? Like you know the nineteenth, twentieth century that yeah. parts of which I was alive for, which was <laughs> interesting. Right. You know, now, now, this book. I mean, the other thing is that any any kind of history, and certainly mine included, is always going to be a provisional. 
story. Uh, what I really hope and assume is that, you know, in, in 20, 30 years from now, that there will be other histories that that will hopefully dramatically improve on things that I did. Um, you know, no history can ever truly pretend to be the final word, and, and uh, I'm certain, especially once uh, some form of disclosure is achieved or the end of the secrecy happens, we're going to have a whole huge teams of historians going through whatever records are available and, and really piecing this together in a more accurate way than I've been able to do. Um, what I've what I've simply tried to do is um, with the with the data that's currently available uh, to put together the best history that I can put together, and uh, hopefully down the road either other historians or I myself will come back and revisit it and uh, continually upgrade and refine what we know to be the case. But I w I'm very satisfied. I, I would say at this point that the book at least is done. And that it it fulfilled the the basic goal that I set out when I wrote it, which is to put together uh, a, a complete but concise history of the UFO phenomenon in those years. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, this book and your previous book, these were the books I was looking for when I first got into Great. UFO studies, so I could understand how this all happened and how it got to where it is today. And that's really what the two books together, and of course the next one, uh, will sort of put a bow on it now that's the question you sort of segued perfectly for me onto that because you know how do you go about writing a book i presume you know the next book is going to bring us up almost to present day that's right the, the, the third volume is going to whatever the day i finish that book on is it's going to be <laughs> to that day um i expect that the book i mean just so happens i think it'll be out probably in the year 2012 um sometime two years from now so it'll be kind of neat uh take it up to 2012 hey why not there you go <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I intend to take it right to the very, right to the very end. How do you tackle the challenge of of writing a history book when you're, when you know, when the history is so fresh? I guess you could say. Well, not only that, but I, I mean, I personally, as a researcher, have been involved in in some of that. At least talking about the attempts to end uh, UFO secrecy, I've I've been involved in some of those efforts myself in the last ten years, and so writing about that, uh, I mean. There's always going to be an issue with objectivity and perspective in any endeavor like that. So all that I can say is that I, I don't intend to follow any different rules in doing the, the third book than I did with these first two. Most of the research for the third book is already done anyway, Tim. I've got uh, 95 98% of the research is in my database, and it's well organized. It's simply a matter of putting the, the narrative together. It's actually, I, in my view, I don't think it's going to be as difficult as it was writing this last second volume. I think I have a good handle on how I want to proceed for volume three. There's um, fewer archival documents that I'll have access to, but that's, I think, made up for by uh, contemporary journalistic accounts of a lot of these cases, many of which were totally confirmed. You know, I don't have archival sources on, say, the... Um, uh, the 2002 F-16 chase of uh, UFOs outside the Capitol. But we do have very good journalistic accounts. I myself have interviewed a number of those witnesses personally. And we do have Air Force confirmation that it happened anyway. So th there are always ways of, of approaching this topic. And uh, even if uh, the U.S. archival system will be, I think, less valuable uh, for the current period, there are always ways of approaching this. and All I can promise you is I'm just going to do the best I can and, and um, 
make it as reliable as I can. Uh, well, I'm not too concerned because I, <laughs> I really enjoyed the, the first two books, okay. and I'm excited to see where this narrative goes. Because as I said before, well, I picked yeah. up this book. Uh, I was thinking, you know, ufology died in the early '70s, and then, you know, then I see how it's changed in the la- in the next 20 years, and it's kind of made me feel, it made me feel a little old when I read the book. They said 1991. Ufology is not dead. It, it, ufology is still going. It's still very vibrant, in my opinion. There's uh, there's always arguments. Everyone yells at each other. You're an idiot. No, you're an idiot, and all of that nonsense. But the fact is that there are there are lots of really brilliant. Uh, people out there. One of them uh, sadly died recently. The brilliant Mac Tawney's. Yeah. Uh, it was very, very sad. I have his last book, which I read recently. It's called The Crypto Terrestrials. Very good book. But there are lots and lots of uh, really interesting people out there who've got great ideas and are also others who are doing great research. The field is continually moving ahead. I think what we're finding in our own era is just what people found in years past, which is that there's great research being done, and it's, and still we have the great disconnect between what the researchers are learning and the total lack of recognition by the mainstream uh, consensus of our society. Uh, you know, we're bumping up into that just as much today as we did 20, 30, 50 years ago. Yeah, I think so. Not to, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but you did sort of just raise an issue here that I did want to mention, just mm-hmm. that. Looking at the window of time that you cover in the book, too, not just the field of ufology, but the public perception of the issue seems to have gone undergone a massive sea change where, kind of like what you said about the crash retrievals being revolutionary for ufology, yeah. I mean, they were just equally revolutionary for the public perception of UFOs, because I don't think before the Roswell story broke that a lot of people were ready to get on board with the cover-up and all that stuff, but now it seems like that's almost... Uh, second nature to a lot of people who look at this from the outside. I think I think it's all due to the internet. I really firmly believe that. And here's why. Um, because the, the public perceptions of UFOs, a lot of it has to do with television, right? I mean, you have some, like the TV show Sightings yeah. um, was, was really instrumental. This is something I'm, I intend to, to deal with explicitly in the third volume. Sightings was a was a major development in public education on the UFO topic, in my opinion. But these shows only became big because it was obvious, even in the early 1990s, there was an Internet. There wasn't much of a web, but there was an Internet. And the UFO topic, right from the beginning, was one of the key drivers of the Internet. People don't realize this. Um, even before pornography made the internet, <laughs> it is UFOs. You know, back in the late '80s, when when there was no graphical user interface, but UFO news groups were the some of the the first major forms of discussion on the internet. Um, and all through the 1990s, the UFO topic was always one of the leading presences on the internet. And so, TV uh, network executives, I think they they caught wind of this. And so what you start seeing in the 90s, as opposed to the 80s and 70s, when there was almost nothing, in the 90s, there started to become very, very compelling television treatment of UFOs. You get sightings, you get the TV show The X-Files, which was, I remember when that was a new show, and the quality of that show was was far beyond uh, anything that I think people had expected for the UFO topic. It was, it was a well-written show, it was very professionally done, and so on. 
And so, um, and then that was only the beginning. There's been so much UFO programming on TV. But again, I think television has gone through its own major change because it's had to deal with the challenge of the Internet. And that, in turn, has, has kind of fed the fire, and the public has a great, great interest in this topic. And I've discovered this. I'm sure you have, too. When you get to people privately, people who would never, ever discuss UFOs in a public venue, when they find out that you're knowledgeable about the UFO topic, they discover they have a great hunger for learning more about this. Yeah. It's very widespread. And so um, I think that the advent of the Internet allowed that hunger to be tapped, as it were, to be fed much more. And we're at a point now in our society where people, yeah, they're much more, especially I think the younger you go. I think people, a lot of them have grown up with this as almost a, a given. I don't think that my, I mean, my view might be skewed because I have two children and Yes, they've grown up with this topic as a given, and all of their friends are totally into it. But I think, I mean, I run into young people all the time, and I just think that this is not such a big deal for them as it, as it has been for people of an earlier generation. I think what's happening is that there's been a very definite change in public attitudes about this, much greater willingness of people to believe that there are alien life forms here on Earth, there's always resistance, but I think that yeah, there's a yeah, yeah, it's definitely de been changes. I definitely think it's a generational uh, change that's going on, and and you know, don't lose hope, folks, because as Rich pointed out, you know, the the power brokers who keep the secret never anticipated the freedom of information or the internet, so you know, they're not omnipotent; they make mistakes. There's constant battling going on. Uh, the Freedom of Information Act, they certainly made their own counter-strike and, and tightened up FOIA, Freedom of Information, a lot. Internet is a battlefield right now. We've got to remind ourselves, it's not just China. It's not just Iran or North Korea. There's a lot of other nations that want to restrict their internet. Australia New Zealand have both been pushing measures through. Britain uh, recently has been pushing through measures that may result in tightening up the internet. And in the United States, there are constantly efforts underway, uh, attempts being made to either uh, cause greater monitoring of the internet or even restrict the internet in some way. None of this is a given. None of it is safe. But yeah, you're right. The internet was a completely unforeseen development and was a major engine toward breaking down secrecy, and it, it will continue to be so. And I am certain that there are going to be new technologies in the next decade that are going to arise that are going to cause more challenges for the secret keepers. That is why I believe that, that a disclosure of some sort is inevitable. It's not that they're going to, they want it to happen. It's that they're not going to be able to avoid it. Yep. Uh, the unstoppable force meets the immovable object. As exactly. So, exactly. All right. Now, we've teased uh, 2012 for Volume 3. I'm sure you'll be being – you're probably already getting the questions So about when the books when, – when's it coming out? When's Volume 3? When are we going to get Volume 3? So right. people can <laughs> take it to heart. Uh, 2012, start looking for it then. Leave Rich alone for the next two years <laughs> while he works on this. Well, <laughs> well, we'll see how far that goes. But uh, I, think, I think 2012 is – is uh, my best bet at this point. It, no, it's not going to be uh, a seven-year uh, wait or an eight-year wait like the Volume 2 was. That was just such a long, long thing. One of the reasons it took me so long to get the second volume done is that for the longest time, my uh, goal was only to have a second final volume. So my goal wasn't to do a trilogy. It was just to do two volumes. And so I did an enormous amount of research on all the very recent years. And then 
you know, midway into writing the book, I thought, this is too much. This is wait, this is going to be a, a thousand plus page book. You might as well just split it into three books. So all of that research that I ended up doing that will be for volume three, I mean, that's all been done. I mean, a great deal of that. Nice. That was one of the things that made this second book take so long. So it'll, I hope, I assume, will shorten up the process for this third book. Indeed. 33 pages of notes here in this volume two. So plenty of avenues for people to explore as they're reading the book. And as I said, 583 pages of text, just massive. And, and kudos to you, sir. I mean, just an amazing piece of work. I loved it. As I said, it was the book that I wish I had had when I first started looking into this UFO subject and, and reading it recently. I just enjoyed it so much. So I hope folks go out and pick it up. And of course, the new, the other book is AD, and that's due out uh, in, I believe you said September, correct? We're, gonna, we're shooting for September 23rd. AD, After Disclosure, Life After Contact. I'm excited about the book. Um, I'm still researching and working on Volume 3, so that's still, I'm doing multiple projects, I guess. But right now I'm, I'm working really hard to get AD done. I think it's going to be a great book. I'm, I just finished one of the chapters yesterday. Bryce and I are working really collaboratively on this in a very productive way. I like working with him. I'm, I've never done a, a co-authorship before, and I've discovered it's uh, it's a good it's a good collaboration that we have going there. So we uh, we see eye to eye on on really all the important matters. Um, he's got a perspective that's I think unique to him, and I've got one that's unique to me. And we're working out a really good book. Yeah, I'm already looking forward to it because I I had thought of an idea like that. So you you beat me to it, and I'm looking. Oh, forward. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> so I'm looking well, forward. You do a better job than I would, I'm sure. So I'm well, hopefully, to you know, it. we'll only be starting the discussion, not uh, not ending it. So uh, I would like that. This would be a, a, an initial foray, and other people can say, you know, let me put my two cents in. Absolutely. Well, we'll definitely have you and Bryce on uh, next fall when the book comes out, so you don't have to worry yeah, about that we'll, for we'll, sure. we'll love doing that, absolutely. And as I've said here, the book's amazing. Folks can pick it up, obviously, through Amazon and all the big chains and stuff, but they really should go through Keyhole Publishing because I'm sure that's the best way to get it. Plus, they can get signed copies, which uh, is always awesome. I sign all of them that are, that are purchased through the website at keyholepublishing.com. So, yeah, go check it out. Um, we do direct ship. Uh, they go, the books go out immediately. And I will just say that people um, have given great reviews to the, the shipping part, like the customer <laughs> service part of the company, just as much as they have to the book. So I, I hope that uh, if you want to purchase a book that way, you'll have, it'll be a good experience for you. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we have a really highly educated audience of uh, – UFO researchers who, who tune into the show. So chances are a lot of them have read the book, but there's also is the chance that some of them haven't. So folks, go out and get this book. I'm telling you, it will skyrocket to your top 10 or top 5 UFO books in your library because it just is a wealth of information. It's just unbelievable, and I, I, can't, I can't put it over enough. I could be talking here all evening uh, telling you how great well, it is. So. I really appreciate that, Tim. Thank you. Coming and, from you, that, that, actually, that really does mean a lot to me. I know you're an extremely knowledgeable person in this field. Thanks. Thanks a lot. And like I said, i got to thank you again for coming on the show. It's been way too long. Uh, we definitely got to move you up into the annual guest stratosphere here it. because there's so much stuff we could talk about. We only scratched the surface here, folks, so go out and pick up UFOs and the National Security State, the cover-up exposed, 1973 to 1991. Rich, great talking to you, as always. My pleasure, Tim. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Richard Dolan for coming back on the show. You can find out more from him and get your hands on UFOs and the National Security State Volume 2 at his website, www.keyholepublishing.com. All one word, keyholepublishing.com. Check it out. 
since we are way behind schedule here getting this week's episode out to folks, and I want to hurry up and put it on the airwaves for everybody, we're going to skip listener feedback this week. Let me give you the contact information for people who want to get in touch with me. Should you want to be featured on a future edition of listener feedback, you can simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button. And if you want something a little more interactive, you can go to the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-A-G-U-S-O-F-E.com. We got threads there for all the different episodes of BOA Audio, dating all the way back to Season 1. And we love discussing not just esoterica, but also pop culture. It is BOA's Paranormal Playground, the official Banal of America forum, theusofe.com. Plus, you can always find me on Twitter, MySpace, and Facebook. Shoot me a line via those social networking sites. I'd be happy to feature your feedback on a future edition of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Up next, let's take care of the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to extend heartfelt thanks and kudos to the amazing BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolan, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. We are very close to rolling out BOA 2.0. Stay tuned for that. And we've got all kinds of new columns from the BOA staff at Benalla of America, so you definitely want to check those out as well. We say it week in and week out, but we mean it, my friends. If you're only listening to Benalla of America and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story. BenallofAmerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. As you may have guessed from the lengthy delays here this season, I've been doing a lot of off-site work, trying to pay the bills, trying to make sure we can keep VOA afloat. How can you help us out? How can you alleviate some of that financial stress? That's simple. You can make a donation to Benall of America and VOA Audio to help keep the whole operation financially solvent. How do you make a donation? That is very easy. You just go to banallofamerica.com or the BOA Audio Archive page, and you click the PayPal button. They'll walk you through the process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benall of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the podcast up and running, freely available and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, we're going to try and get it to you next week. Don't worry about that. We are sort of back on track, I think. Our guest is Dr. Joy Pugh. She's the author of Eden, The Knowledge of Good and Evil 666. Really thought-provoking edition of the program. Dr. Joy Pugh has spent decades researching biblical prophecy and esoteric history. She's going to join us to reveal how she believes that her research has uncovered the true identity of the Antichrist and how his arrival is the result of a millennia-long plan put into action by nefarious forces around the world. It is an epic conversation, definitely one that will have you thinking after it's all said and done. It's a wildly entertaining edition of the program. I'm sure folks really are going to enjoy it. It's an avenue we have yet to explore on the program, Biblical Prophecy, the Antichrist. We're going to get into all that next week with Dr. Joy Pugh, only on BOA Audio. 
And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio. Thanks again to Richard Dolan for coming on the show. Check out his website, keyholepublishing.com. And most of all, I want to thank all the great folks out there listening. Thank you for your patience. I know it's been a really wild season so far here in 2010. It's been touch and go to an extreme, but we are going to continue producing top-notch audio programs for you week in and week out as best we can. BOA Audio is not going anywhere, my friends. Like I said, though, I just want to once again thank all you great folks out there for your support and your patience and for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.